the National Archives podcast series, Burial Clubs, The Unfriendly Society, presented by Audrey Collins. Many burial clubs, and they're often called burial societies, in fact, if you put them in indexes, you will usually find the term burial society more often than burial club. But it's terribly bad style to use the same word twice in a sentence if you can avoid it. And some, although by no means all burial clubs, were actually friendly societies. And there is a legal significance in the term friendly societies. Now, for most people, this was not really an issue. It didn't particularly matter whether your burial club was constituted as a friendly society or not. Although for some people, it would turn out to matter a very great deal. But first of all, what was a burial club? Well, it was something that was of great importance, mainly to poor people. And the quote from Charles Lamb, which I rather like, many a savoury morsel has the living body been deprived of that the lifeless one might be served up in a richer state to the worms. Sorry if you've just eaten. And I think that puts it very, very eloquently that... Poor people, they might have very little in life, but they had a great horror of the prospect of a pauper's funeral. And a longer quote is actually, what he says is, nothing tends to keep up in the imaginations of the poorer sort of people, a generous horror of the workhouse, more than the manner in which pauper funerals are carried on in this metropolis. The coffin, nothing but a few naked planks coarsely put together. The want of a pall that decent and well-imagined veil which, hiding the coffin that hides the body, keeps that which would shock us at two removes from us, the coloured coats of the men that are hired at cheap rates to carry the body, altogether give the notion of the deceased having been some person of an ill life and conversation, someone who may not claim the full rights of burial, one by whom some parts of the sacred ceremony would be desecrated, should they be bestowed on him. I meet these meagre processions sometimes in the street. They are sure to make me out of humour and melancholy all the day after. They have a harsh and ominous aspect. And this is something you may well have come across in general reading or in just through your own families and friends. There is a, a deep-seated horror of the pauper funeral. People will go without, quite literally go without, so that their nearest and dearest can have a decent send-off. And I used to know someone who had actually married into a, a firm of uh, uh, funeral directors, uh, several generations standing, and she said that her father-in-law had explained to her that they used to have this uh, a sort of dummy coffin that they would use for people who couldn't actually afford a proper coffin. They had a sort of dummy one, which was just a cover, rather like the sort of cardboard wartime wedding cake. The real thing underneath it was rather um, unpretentious, but there would be something that would give a decent show over the side. And it literally lifted off the top, uh, and then the burial in a very, very plain coffin would, would then take place. But for the sake of decency, you would have the show of a good coffin. And that's within living memory. And even today, people are still bombarded with adverts on daytime TV. You can see how they pick their market segment, the retired, 
they're exhorted to save for a decent funeral. Well, that is just carrying on in a tradition which has been going on for centuries. And it is the relatively poor people in society who have always been keen. Richer people don't really have to worry because there will be enough money in the, the person's estate. Um, and when you haven't been deprived of things throughout your life, you're probably less bothered. I don't know. But for, for all these reasons, poor people have always been very inclined to, be, to want to save a little so that they can have a decent funeral and so that their nearest and dearest can have a decent funeral. Well, that's all well and good, but the trouble is, wherever you've got money, you have got problems. You have got the possibilities of crime and fraud. And the burial clubs or burial societies were really quite good pickings. There were a number of things that could go wrong. First of all, there were the burial clubs or societies themselves, regardless of whether they were set up under the Friendly Society Act or not. There were a number of criticisms. Now, it has to be said of a minority of clubs and friendly societies, but where it was considered that the officers of these organisations were spending a little too much on running expenses and not enough on what the burial club money was actually for, that there was often a little too much in the hospitality budget. If you notice the slide at the very beginning, the title slide, it's rather a pretty looking thing, but it describes a burial club that was based in a public house. And this is very, very common. It doesn't mean it was run by the public house, although the proprietor may have had an interest in it, but it did mean that that was where people gathered together. It was a convenient place, perfectly reasonable thing to do. It's a place where people gather, so it's a convenient place for you to turn up and pay your dues. It's a fixed point for a society that wouldn't have premises of its own. We're not talking about great big insurance companies at this point, although that's what some of them, or the friendly society, some of them actually grew into. You're talking about a body that exists sort of virtually, and people would gather together very often in a pub. And in fact, in the passage that Charles Lamb wrote, that we quoted from there, he is commenting on one particular one. He's been given a handbill by this particular burial club or burial society, and this one, like many of them, meets in a public house and he says rather dryly that you might assume that the proprietor of the public house had some sort of interest in it. But in fact, the proprietor of the burial club, the one who was exhorting people to save their money with it, was in fact, uh, his day job was, um, he was an undertaker. Well, nothing wrong with that, but it does show that the man did have a, a particular incentive in having people save up to pay for funerals, which, of course, he would then be in a very good position to provide. So they were often in pubs, and there was a great temptation to spend you know, a little more than uh, the members might ideally have liked on the hospitality budget. In fact, I looked at one news cutting, there was one infamous event when the members of, uh, or, the, or the committee, the trustees, or whatever they happened to be called, of this particular society were meeting in a pub and they consumed so much alcohol that there were two brothers who staggered home afterwards. And on the way, one of them was so drunk that he collapsed and died. And the other brother was so drunk that he didn't notice until he got home and wondered where his brother was. And they found the corpse. Was in I presume that they were fully paid up in their burial society, but I have no way of knowing. And... 
there's another thing, being paid up. Now, the regulations did vary. Uh, it was up to each society, uh, within reasonable limits, to set up its own rules. And as a general rule, like many insurance schemes, you have to pay in a certain amount or pay in for a certain period before you can actually make a claim. It's like you have to join the AA before you can call them out. Well, it was a little bit like that. And it was very often something like six months or a year, uh, some reasonable period. And the idea was, I suppose, that you wouldn't sign somebody up when they were just about to breathe their last. They didn't have medical examinations, although all oh, the lovely adverts that you get on daytime TV say no medical required. That was as, as a sort of rule of thumb. It was if you weren't actually dying, then you were probably an okay sort of risk. That would be the general idea. But of course, like insurance companies today, in my own personal experience, and I used to work for one, if they can find a way of not paying out uh, with recourse to the small print, they will jolly well do it. And I don't know how widespread this was, but I have certainly come across a number of examples where some poor soul thought they were covered... Uh, and then when they came to claim, they discovered, well, no, actually not. You can't. And there was one, and, and this is actually a London example, which is a great relief to me because many of the, uh, the, the cases that I've come across are actually in the north, very specifically in Lancashire. And this is not to say that people from Lancashire are any more criminally minded uh, than anybody else, although they, it may be that they're smarter and they can think up better schemes. It's just that burial clubs and societies tended to be more popular in the industrial north than in the rest of the country. But you do find them absolutely everywhere. And this one was one which met at the, uh, at the Globe Public House. Oh, look, another pub. Uh, in Hatton Garden. And this actually came to, to court. That, uh, a widow called Sarah Forrest, and this was in 1836 was the widow of a deceased member of this particular burial society and, and she brought them to court to show cause why they refused to pay for the five pounds which she was expecting for the funeral expenses of her late husband. And it appeared that the deceased had been a member of the club nearly two years, during which period he paid up his weekly payments, etc. regularly, but in consequence of his death having taken place within 24 hours of the time which would complete the two years, which would entitle um, his widow to receive five pounds, the club objected to the payment of the sum. And the defendant, who's the secretary of the club, said that you know, unless the two years had been completed prior to the death, the party could not claim the money. Um, and, you know, and it says here in the small print, more or less. And um, the upshot of it was that the secretary did reluctantly pay the money out. But it was, it's an example of somebody who actually persisted and took it to law. Uh, a lot of people would have just given up. And I think two years, frankly, is a bit on the stingy side. Usually it was a much shorter period than that. But that was just one example, which I found, um, this one was actually reported in the Times. But it's just one example of exactly this sort of thing. And sometimes it was a little bit more sinister than that, because it wasn't that somebody hadn't quite fulfilled their entry requirements, they hadn't quite been subscribing for long enough. Sometimes they had been paying in good faith and the collector had been marking up their book or whatever kind of receipt they used, but had pocketed the money. 
And again, there were quite a number of cases of this. I've always been terribly interested in fraud, in a theoretical sense, obviously, not in a hands-on practical way. I'm much too honest or also much too scared I'd get caught. But my very first full-time job was working with an insurance company. And I always found it quite interesting to see, okay, this is how the system works. How would somebody set up a fraud on it? Where are the weak links? So I would either, I think, have been quite a good white-collar criminal or quite a good investigator. I don't know which. So that's why I'm a historian. I don't know. And there is always a weak link, and there will be somebody who will find you know, a loophole in regulations or who will find something where there is a perfectly good rule. It won't be very well policed, so they will find that's something I can get away with. It's a bit like, yes, there's a security guard on the door, but he always goes for lunch. So if you want to take stuff out, you do it during that hour. Sometimes it was that simple. Yes, there is a rule that is supposed to stop you doing this, that or the other. But if nobody cares about it, then you can get away with, well, as it turns out, literally murder. But more of that later. So that was one of the issues, that the burial society might not quite work as you expected it to, and sometimes it would be as a result of misbehaviour by an officer of that society. And I found another one, which I fortunately can't find an actual reference to at the moment, but I know it's in there somewhere, where the, the, the collector who had all this money and who was a, a secretary of the society was also a registrar of births and deaths. So he was awfully well-placed. Having said that, he got caught... Otherwise, we wouldn't have known about it, so maybe he wasn't that good after all. Now, I mentioned about the friendly societies and that some burial clubs were friendly societies and some weren't. And the difference that this made was some of the, the rules. And under the, the Friendly Society Act of 9th and 10th Victoria, so that's going to be about 1847, it is expressly provided that no person under the age of six shall be allowed to become a member of a friendly society for money payable on death and that no insurance shall be affected on the life of any child under six years of age. Now, this was quite important. You could not enrol a child, you could not insure the life of a child in a burial club that was constituted as a friendly society. But you could if it was not so constituted. And that could be under different act altogether, which was where it was effectively an insurance company and there were slightly different rules applied. Another thing that distinguished them was that if it was a friendly society, you needed not only a death certificate which was actually quite easy to obtain. Up till 1874, it was remarkably easy to get a death certificate, as you'll see. But a friendly society would actually require a medical certificate. So that's the, something signed by a doctor that will actually give a proper cause of death. So it means that the body will have been examined by a doctor and he will have pronounced the cause of death, whatever it was. But one that was not a friendly society could just be an ordinary death certificate from a registrar would do. And it was astonishingly easy to get one of those. As I've said, you simply went along to your local registrar and said, you know, Granny's dead. And he said, oh, I'm terribly sorry, give me the details. And you'd write it all down, you'd sign it, and then you'd take it off 
to the, the, the burial club that you had enrolled your poor old granny in and you would collect the money. The fact that you didn't have a granny or that this was your eighth deceased grandmother did not enter into it. It was actually very easy to do. If you had the nerve to do it, there's a declaration. If you, all sorts of threats that if you, if you knowingly give false information, you are liable to all kinds of penalties. Well, yeah, they have to catch you, don't they? And if that wasn't very much of a, a disincentive, then sky's the limit. And this is pretty much what happened. And this is the thing about death certificates as opposed to burials. Before 1837, you have a rather imperfect system of baptisms, marriages, and burials. And civil registration was meant to be a great improvement on this. And on the whole, it was, because it covered absolutely everybody, not just people who chose to go to the Church of England. And the certificates all had legal force. But the one big weakness of the system, certainly for the first few years, was that to have a baptism, you have to actually have a baby, or at least a person, to take along to the font and have water sprinkled on them. To have a burial, you have to have a body. But to record a birth or a death, you don't have to produce a person at all. The certificates would just be issued on your say-so. Now, the Registration Act of 1874 tidied this up a great deal. Uh, and in particular, for deaths, you actually had to have a medical certificate before the registrar would issue you a death certificate. So that actually cleaned it up quite a lot. But prior to that, the fictitious death was, well, I don't know how common. It's a little bit worrying. Um, and we really have no way of knowing for certain. But what I do know is that the, the certificates, these fictitious death certificates, were actually... Still, they're still in the, in the registers, they're still in the indexes, and I have copies of quite a number of them. And these are known, they've been proved in court to be completely bogus and fictitious. But they are still there, and you can still order a certified copy. So there must be some very puzzled genealogists who have got death certificates of people um, who either never existed or who actually did exist, but they weren't dead, or who appeared to die several times. Now, that's not to say that you didn't get frauds earlier than that. The very earliest one I have found uh, was actually dated 1829, but that wasn't for a fraud, that was for a murder. But that was a man called Edward Reed, who was executed at Ilchester Jail. Well, it, it actually says in the newspaper, goal, but I think it means jail, for the murder of his wife by poisoning. Immediately after his conviction, he made an ample confession of his guilt, by which it appeared that for the sake of the trifling sum of six pounds, five shillings and sixpence, which he became entitled to on the death of his wife, he belonging to a burial society, he committed the horrid deed for which he has paid the forfeit of his life. That was 1829. But generally speaking, I don't really find these until you get into the, the era of civil registration. And once you get there they actually start coming thick and fast. New system comes in in 1837, and the earliest example that I have found where people have actually twigged this, and this is where, A, where somebody has been caught, and where I have come across the actual official notification of it. And the earliest one I've got was in November 1838, but it wouldn't surprise me one bit if there are earlier examples. And this was a false entry of death 
in the Ancoats sub-district of Manchester. Um, there you see it's Lancashire. I'm sorry about that, but I'm afraid it is. And a woman called Mary McGee, uh, well, a woman called Mary McGee, aged 53, a washerwoman, is supposed to have died of fever. And the death was notified by Margaret Brooks, who uh, made her mark. And she was the, the, the daughter uh, of Mary McGee, whose real name apparently was Bruce. And uh, the end, she had made this false declaration that her mother was dead to gain money from a burial club, which one assumes they had been subscribing to, otherwise it would be a very poor sort of fraud indeed. Now, I don't know any more. This is just in some um, home office correspondence with, with the General Register Office, and it's one of those intriguing things where you get a little snippet about something in one record, and it's not always possible to tie it up with the, the rest of the story from elsewhere, at least not in this case. It may be, if I really tried very hard, I'll put it on the list of 100 things to do when I have the time, so don't hold your breath. But a few months after that, so we're two years into the system, then I have actually got a bit more like chapter and verse on a genuine one. And this was the, the, the death of Elizabeth Stretch. And this one, it's not in Manchester this time, it's all the way in Liverpool. And there is the death of Elizabeth Stretch in uh, June 1839, Poor little soul is aged something like three years, six, two years, six months, I think. It's very hard to read as these very early certificates often are. But she's Elizabeth Stretch, the daughter of uh, Samuel Stretch, a joiner. Uh, poor thing died of consumption. And there it is. It, it's registered by the father. And he, re he goes to the, the local registrar uh, in, in June 1839. Well, this is a genuine certified copy. Well, this isn't, but there is. You can get a certified copy. Except that Elizabeth Stretch wasn't dead. There was an Elizabeth Stretch, the daughter of Samuel, but she wasn't that age. She was actually quite a bit older. In fact, a month later, when she died again, or actually didn't die again, now she's 19 which is actually her right age, give or take. She still died of consumption. She's still the daughter of Samuel Stretch, and he's still at the same address and the same occupation. But there is a little marginal note, which you can probably barely see, and it's hardly readable, that where the registrar has signed it, in the margin, it says C letter, and then there's a letter number, which seems to refer to something that that the registrar would have in his own correspondence, which probably no longer exists. Uh, one day I might find it. But the reason that I know about this was because, again, this is in General Register Office correspondence, and it came to light because the very much alive Elizabeth Stretch stormed into the registrar's office very indignantly and put a copy of this, uh, this certificate on the desk. She'd found it in her father's pockets when she was going through them the night before, which she was in the habit of doing because um, she described him as an idle, drunken fellow, and I think it seemed to be the habit to go through his pockets when he fell into a drunken stupor, just to see if there was anything in there that he hadn't actually drunk. And she was going for loose change, I'm guessing, but she found this piece of paper and uh, was, was a little put out to discover it was her own death certificate. So that's why that particular one came to um, light. But he'd obviously done this in June and thought, oh, that was easy, and off he went and did it again a month later. And he just got careless. And this is the thing that always bothers me about 
crimes of fraud is that the ones we know about are the ones where they got caught. And the perfect crime isn't one that isn't solved, it's the one that you don't know it ever took place at all. So what we can never know is how many people actually got away with this stuff. There must have been some. So that was Elizabeth Stretch. But this was an idea whose time had evidently come. And the deaths of John and Patrick Keogh. And this is in, um, oh, it's Liverpool again. And there you got the death of John Keogh, small child, dies of smallpox, son of John Keogh, labourer. And the, the death is registered by his mother, Margaret, who can't sign. But she says she was present at the death and she gives uh, an address in St. Martin Street. And she goes to the registrar. Child dies on the 27th of February and she goes to the registrar on the 28th. And then, terribly unlucky here, because she has another son called Patrick, who's also died on the same day. Although he seems to have died of croup. But he died on the same day, at the same place, and they're consecutive entries. If you see the numbers on the left, they're 98 and 99. So this poor, grieving woman went along to the registrar on the 28th of February to register the deaths of her two infant children who'd both died the day before. Except that on the same day, someone called Margaret Keogh, different spelling of the surname, went and registered the death of her infant son, John, and her infant son, Patrick. Except now she's giving a different address because she's gone to the registrar in a different sub-district of Liverpool. But it can't have been very far away because she's done this on the same day. If you actually look in the indexes, you will see all four of these entries, the two Johns and the two Patricks, with the different spellings of the surname, but they are all in Liverpool. And again, the second John and the second Patrick, they are consecutive entries in that register book. Their number's 18 and 19. Now, she obviously went to one of them, and I don't know which one was first, but she went to one of them and got the death certificate. Thought, oh, that worked! So immediately went, probably not a very great distance, because Liverpool being a very, very densely populated city, you wouldn't have to go very far to get into another district. And she went and registered the same two deaths with another registrar. Now, if it seemed too good to be true from her point of view, that's probably because it was. What didn't occur to her was that her demeanour was obviously a bit suspicious, because one of the registrars suspected something and she was actually followed and they, they made inquiries in the street and there was nobody of that name lived there and there certainly hadn't been any deaths. Whether or not these two children actually existed in the first place, I don't know. They might have done, they might not. But what is certain is that they did not die um, uh, under the circumstances here in these four certified entries. There is nothing in the register to say that these are um, false entries, even though it was actually proved in court that they were. Uh, the General Register Office keeps... It, it, the, their job is to keep the records and not to make any judgments about what is or isn't genuine unless they are specifically told to do. So if something is proved in a court of law to be completely fictitious, they will amend it but only if the court actually takes the trouble to tell them to. If nobody says, then it stays as it is. 
So, um, you know, there could be all sorts of other interesting things. And, of course, what she... The other thing that she didn't think of, and various other people didn't think of, is that these registrars, they know each other. They talk to each other. They swap notes. They have a pretty good idea what was going on. And these were by no means isolated cases. This is a very worrying thing. And those are just a couple of examples where I've got the certificates. But around about the same time, there was another one, November 1839, a woman called Elizabeth Wilson registered the pretended death of her daughter, and she got hauled up before the magistrates. Again, it wasn't a very well-thought-out crime. People thought, oh, this is quite easy, this is what you do, and then they, lack of attention to detail. And this particular woman was, was extremely poor. She was living in, in a cellar, and she, the, the money that she got, unlike Samuel Stretch, she hadn't spent it on drink. She had spent the money on a bed and some bedding and chairs and a table. So th- th- these were crimes of of desperation rather than greed, at least in her case. Samuel Stretch, really, there's no excuse for him. But that was just a couple of examples, of my favourite examples, of frauds on burial clubs. Now, that was all very well. And I said that the 1874 Act actually tidied this up quite a lot because you couldn't then go um, and just get a death certificate just by saying so and having the brass neck to tell lies to a registrar and go and get your certificate. You actually had to have uh, medical proof that someone had actually died. So there was the fraud pretty much stamped out. Unfortunately, that in itself is not proof against actual murder. If you wanted to claim money from a burial society, you actually had to have a body. So if you didn't have a, one who was somebody who was going to die anyway, you actually had to see them off. And there was a lot of this, unfortunately. And there was a great deal of concern about it. Hence the, what I've already said about the, the friendly societies, that at least there were some restrictions on the insurance of children. And sadly, a lot of parents had used their children as uh, sort of money generating. Children were a terrible drag on your finances then as now. And there were some parents who were unscrupulous enough to think, oh, well, this child's sickly. Uh, it's going to die anyway, so I might as well get some money out of it. And there are some people who are just hideous, horrible, callous brutes, and there always have been. But I think there were probably quite a number who came into the category, well, if you lived in industrial Manchester in the 1840s or 50s, or Liverpool, or Leeds, or the East End of London, you kind of expected to lose a few children. Uh, and even if you were in a rural area... Rural poverty is a bit prettier to look at, but it's just as bad. And you would still expect maybe to lose some children. So I think there was a sort of grey area. They weren't all completely wicked, callous people, but there was an element of, well, we'll make sure the children are well insured because they're probably going to die anyway. And people are actually, you've heard to make remarks of it when somebody says, oh, I'm terribly sorry to hear your child's dead or your child's at death's door. Oh, it's all right, it's in a building, it's in a burial club. Um, and uh, that, that was, may, may have been extremely callous, but I suspect there was an element of, well, at least um, we've got the insurance, so it will cover the cost of the funeral. You just have to make your own interpretation on each particular case, but I think it's probably wrong uh, to think absolutely the worst of everybody. But having said that, there were definitely some extremely nasty people around. This one, 
the deaths of Richard and James Pimblett. Now, this is a little bit odd, actually. This was reported in the newspapers and uh, obviously investigated in great detail. And this may just simply be registrar's mistakes, but these two deaths, they're both around about the same time. They're both in March 1846 in Runcorn. But the first child to die was actually registered later. James Pimblett is supposed to have died on the 10th of March, and this was allegedly a sudden unexpected death. It says, found dead in bed. Uh, he was aged 10 months, so it's what we now call a cot death. Um, but this was referred to the coroner, and the death wasn't actually registered until after a coroner's inquest, and it was registered on the 31st of March. But the other one, Richard Pimblett, and the newspapers describing the court case describe these two children as brothers, which is slightly puzzling because one of them is described as the son of James Pimblett and the other one is the son of Joseph Pimblett. One is a labourer and one a ship's carpenter. But I suspect that may just be no more than a registrar's mistake. But it's something I'd quite like to look into, although not to the extent of spending £14 on two certificates for the local registrar office in Runcorn. I may just try and shut up a registrar, see where it gets me. But the second child to die, Richard, he actually died on the 19th, so that's nine days after this other child who is supposedly his brother. But, and his death is registered within a couple of days. Teething convulsions, aged four years, and this, is, this one was reg just registered by the, the father. So that's an extra little mystery, but it may be no more than a clerical error. But again... It was when the, the coroner actually uh, went into this that the, the parents in this case were suspected and, as it turned out, tried. And one of them, at least, was executed for the murder of the children. Now, sadly, this was by no means an isolated occurrence. I have come across so many examples of these. I have the details, some of which I've noted down here and that I've described to you. These have come partly from newspapers and partly from home office correspondence in the National Archives, that it was definitely a source of great concern. And there is a document. These are things that have been easily found using the catalogue. strongly suspect there is a very great deal more, but it will take some, um, some, some digging. And um, there is, was one, one particular document which actually mentions this, this case uh, among various others. But it, it was about... The, the file reference is actually is about burial clubs and the uh, murders of people who are enrolled in burial clubs. And there was a great deal of concern about this. And it reiterates the point that if burial clubs were registered under the Friendly Societies Act, they had rather more sort of watertight rules. But if they weren't, and they were effectively companies, they would be subject instead to the Joint Stock Companies Act as effectively insurance companies. And... They did not, these were the people who did not require a medical certificate of death. So th this was still a, a good way to bump off your relatives if you were going to insure them in a burial club, if you insured them in a burial club, which was constituted under the Joint Stock Companies Act. They were going to be a little less picky about um, the documentation, although in practice, I don't think that made any difference. When you have got people... Um, and these are slum dwellers. These are people who are at the bottom end of society, sort of financially and morally in these cases. 
they're probably not going to be overly picky about the precise constitution of the burial clubs. Pretty much they will find local burial clubs, of which there were very many, and they would enrol the person that they uh, intended to, to poison, smother, or um, otherwise make off with in a local burial club, or ideally several. And then once your minimum payment period was up, see, see them into the hereafter and then with a presumably increasingly crumpled and dog-eared death certificate, hawk it around all the various burial clubs that you'd enrolled them in. And uh, there was a lot of concern about this. In this particular document, which is, uh, I've listed on the handout, there were various uh, suggestions that perhaps it would be a good idea, instead of paying out in cash, that the payment should go directly to the undertakers for the funerals which seems like a reasonably good idea, although in practice that probably would have been very difficult and then you would, that would have just opened the doors for any corrupt undertakers. So for a variety of reasons that never seems to have seen the light of day. But there were quite a number of them and a document within that set actually lists some of the well-known cases, uh, is it including the, uh, the, the Pimlet one. And uh, in 1846 at York Assizes, a man called John Rodder was convicted of the murder of his child aged a year old uh, by pouring sulfuric acid down his throat, for which he gained £2.10. shillings. It wasn't always children, though. It was, you know, a vulnerable adult will do just as well as a defenceless child. 1847, a woman called Mary Ann Milner was charged with the murders of her mother-in-law, her sister-in-law and her niece uh, with arsenic. And her father-in-law, she obviously didn't give him enough of the stuff because it didn't kill him, but he was rendered imbecile by the poison and so on. And there are various others. A woman called Anne Mather in Warrington. See, I'm sorry, it's the North again. Was convicted of the arsenic poisoning of her husband. And um, interestingly, the statistics, mortality statistics, which of course were now being gathered with great enthusiasm by the Registrar-General, or uh, actually by his deputy, William Farr, showed that there was a, a higher than expected rate of mortality in the areas where there were burial clubs, given you know, other, all other circumstances being equal. And in fact, in, um, much earlier than this, Harriet Martineau, and I've listed that on the handout. It's a, it's a book that was published in 1861, but it is on Google Books, which is how I found it. But she says, there is a town in England which had in 1854 a population somewhat under 100,000. It is a healthy and prosperous place where the average age reached by the easy classes is as high as 47 years of age. Okay. And where the work people are so far thriving that they pay largely to the various objects of friendly societies, very sensible, very prudent of them. What would my readers suppose to be the mortality among children in such a place? Of a hundred children born, how many die in infancy? Of the children of the gentry, 18% die in infancy. Well, that's pretty high. But of those of the working classes, how many? 56%. Now, even for a, you know, for, for a horrible slum area, that would be very high. But this is what she describes, relatively speaking, as a fairly pleasant place. And she checks this against some other statistics. She said, the rural parts of Dorsetshire, where the poverty of the labourers is actually proverbial, uh, may be selected as the lowest we can propose, yet the infants of Dorsetshire labourers have four times as good a chance of life as the children we have been speaking of. 
In that healthy and prosperous town, the infant mortality was, in 1854, fourfold that of the poorest parts of Dorsetshire. The same thing was then true of Manchester, where wager, when wages were highest and everybody was able to live comfortably, again, this would be relatively speaking, four times as many percent of the children who were born died in Manchester as in Dorsetshire. Now, you could query her methodology there, that there may have been extra factors that an a town in the industrial north where you'd reasonably expect a higher mortality rate. But these figures are ridiculous. They are extremely high. And there is no doubt that there was a correlation with the rate of subscriptions to burial clubs. Very, very suspicious stuff. And there is one very notorious case, which was actually in Essex. So this was not exclusively northern. But in 1851, a woman called Sarah Chesham was convicted at Chelmsford for the murder of her husband. But she'd been previously charged in 1847 with the murder of her two children by poison. And again in 1849, it doesn't say what this was, presumably another child, the article doesn't say. And another woman called Mary May, who was executed in 1848, said she had committed the crime at Chesham's instigation. And it refers to another case. And, oh dear, we're back to Liverpool again. The mother and a grandmother killing the child with sulfuric acid. And in Blackburn County Court, uh, a woman entered her husband and four children in a burial society, but the society refused payment when one of them died. They obviously suspected something. Again, it's one of these tantalising things where there's a little pricey there, but it doesn't go into uh, all the detail. But there, there, is a, there was a great deal there. Now, that was what went on in the early years of registration, when you, had, you could drive a coach and horses through the law regarding the death certification. As I said, this was tidied up quite a lot by the 1874 Act. But this only stopped these rather simple frauds. It didn't stop the murders. And there was one absolutely notorious case which made all the newspapers. And this, this were the Black Widows of Liverpool. And there was actually a book about this which I, I bought... Um, I don't know if it's still in print. It was a sort of relatively small local publication. I put the details on there. You should be able to get it through a library. You're not borrowing mine. But it's called The Black Widows of Liverpool and uh, a chilling account of cold-blooded murder in Victorian Liverpool. And this was two extremely unpleasant women. And there's some very, well, okay, your, your, your jail photographs are going to make you look scary. But they still look mean anyway. And this is extremely well-researched. It's got all the footnotes, a huge number of documents so um, th this was a, a really very, very chilling case. And, of course, the, the press like, sensationalised this, and that is the artist's recreation of one of their several victims whom they, they'd enrolled in burial clubs and then saw off uh, with poison. This was something else. Poison was awfully easy to get. I mean, now you can't go and buy a large quantity of paracetamol. You can only get fairly small ones. But then you could just go down and buy arsenic, and uh, anybody who remembers seeing the, the TV series that was on a few years ago, The 1900 House, it was pretty much a death trap, really. The sort of things that people would have around the house. There were some highly toxic things. Arsenic was awfully useful for all kinds of things. So it was very easy to get. And people always had really rather good excuses for having some. And, oh, it, um, uh, it, was, it was on the, the draining board and... Uh, oh, it, it must have splashed and a drop accidentally went into my husband's dinner and other lame excuses like that. But that, that is a, an imagined scene 
of, of uh, these two um, dreadful women seeing off one of their victims, some of whom were their relatives, some of them were just lodgers. And uh, the, uh, they, they were actually caught and executed for this, and this is one of them, the day of repentance. I don't know if she actually did repent, but uh, the, the, the clergyman saying the prayers over her seems to think that she might. But it was quite a notorious case at the time, and rather like the other, another notorious, much more recent case of the Yorkshire Ripper, they were kind of caught by accident. And if you actually read the whole story they could very easily have got away with it. And there are very strong suggestions from many of the witnesses that these were effectively running a, a sort of murder ring. They'd found a nice way of, uh, of, of gaining money by enrolling people in burial clubs. Now, this is proposal form, Royal Liver Friendly Society. So this was one of the good ones. But that really didn't save the, the unfortunate person, Margaret Jennings, there, who was, who was being enrolled in it. Now, what was supposed to happen was that the person who was being enrolled was supposed to know about it and ideally sign. And the burial um, societies, and in this case, are perfectly reputable. It's a royal live, a friendly society. This is not some cowboy outfit. They were supposed to be concerned about who was being signed up. But the weak link was the way the whole thing worked. You had the company, which was obviously a fairly substantial one, and you would have local canvassers and collectors. And while the insurance company itself might say, oh, no, we, we, are, we are a reputable company, we only insure people who have a, a genuine insurable interest, and we wouldn't dream of having somebody signed up without their consent. However, they still wanted to sign up as many people as possible. And the person, the canvasser who went out and signed people up, he didn't care whether this was a genuine one or not. And the evidence given in this particular court case and in others makes it very, very clear that it was very widespread collusion that people would quite happily, the canvasser, who was getting a commission for everybody signed up, was not going to be overly fussy. And then there probably were some very upstanding, honest ones, I'm sure. But for the most part... They would turn a blind eye when somebody said, oh, she, um, she can't sign at the moment, she's in the pub, or uh, she's asleep, or you know, so, some fairly cobbled-together excuse like that. And they would just nod them through. Yes, that's all right, we quite understand. That's all right, nobody will check it. And if a person couldn't write, you know, you, it's, it's very easy to forge across. So they would very happily turn a blind eye. And, of course, the people at head office who might have an idea that this sort of thing was going on would probably pretend not to know because so long as the money was coming in and the paperwork looked okay, they didn't want to go um, investigating things which might result in their having fewer clients, although it probably would have been in their interest because they wouldn't then have had to pay out um, on all these uh, terribly unfortunate people who had a much, seemed to have a much higher death rate on account of being signed up in burial clubs. But this was one which was the fact that it was a nice, regular-looking proposal form with a nice, reputable company did not stop this unfortunate woman being murdered, being poisoned by the, 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 the dreaded black widows. Now, they were caught and they were executed and it was a big, big story in all the papers. But, as I said, from the evidence given by the witnesses and the various commentaries on it in the newspapers and from the many, many other things that I have found, 
either in the newspapers or in the correspondence that I found in the Home Office, various other places, Harriet Martineau's book, and a number of other sources. This is something where I really think it is the tip of a very, very scary iceberg indeed. And the, the person who researched this book uh, did a tremendous job on it, and she had a really good look in all sorts of record sources, both here and in uh, local offices in Liverpool. But I'm sure that there is a very, very great deal more waiting to be discovered. Now, the sources that I used uh, in the National Archives, which are uh, home office correspondence, and in particular, there were a few of the examples came from the HO39-5, which is General Register Office correspondence. vast majority of the correspondence in there is nothing to do with, uh, with these burial club frauds, but there are, it's mainly about people refusing to, to register births. But there were quite a number there, and, uh, and I've, I've made notes of several, and I've quoted a couple of them to you. And, and also the other document, which is very specifically about the concerns among the various authorities and uh, concerned individuals that people who were insured in burial clubs um, were, were at risk of being uh, um, bumped off by their supposed nearest and dearest. This isn't really about friendly societies because only a relatively small number of burial clubs were actually friendly societies. But we do have quite a, a lot of records that the Registry of Friendly Societies, which is in the FS series. Now, most of what's there is in, you're not going to get lists of names and accounts and things, but you do get the rules of the various societies. And, of course, they cover a much, much wider range than just the burial clubs. But just out of interest, I've mentioned that just in case you're interested in them. And for those which were not friendly societies but which were companies, then there are a few burial clubs or burial societies in the uh, files of dissolved companies. That's the main resources that I looked at, except that I've put on your handout... Uh, a couple of web resources. Now, one of them is um, Your Archives. And again, this is about the friendly societies, but I always like to do a plug for Your Archives whenever I can because I sit two seats away from Guy Granham, who is the manager of Your Archives. And that is the Our Own Wiki site where uh, you, me, anybody can add to it and put in information, uh, transcribe information that we found in documents in the National Archives. And um, if you actually go into the wiki, I can't remember if I've given you the um, URL there. It's actually easier to go to our website and find it under Search the Archives. But either way, um, there is actually quite a lot of information in there. If you, if you just search for Registry of Friendly Societies, some very good background information there. And also on our catalogue, if you go to the FS Friendly Society series and just look at the um, full details there's a lot of interesting information about friendly societies. And the risk of uh, promoting a rival publication, I, I just happened to notice, I only got this a couple of weeks ago, but the current issue of Who Do You Think You Are magazine has actually got quite a nice article in it about friendly societies. But the main source, which you can have endless fun with, is looking at newspapers. Now, I have mentioned there in particular the British Library 19th century newspaper collection, which we, we have got access to here. We had a trial recently, and um, I'm very happy to say that we've actually now got access to it, and you can explore that on the machines outside. Quite a number of local libraries, uh, 
borough libraries and county libraries subscribe to it. And I discovered quite by accident, uh, as a chance remark from somebody else, that I, I belong to a Buckinghamshire library. And my Buckinghamshire library card gives me access to the 19th century newspapers and the Times Digital Archive, uh, which is great fun. I can do that from home. It's wonderful. And it's worth checking out what your own library uh, may allow you access to. But there are quite a number of free things the, the Old Bailey Online has got limited amount of uh, cases, but there are certainly some involving burial clubs and murder. And there are sort of smaller online resources. I think Westmoreland and Cumberland newspapers, there is a, a site that has some transcriptions. But I mentioned just the main ones, which is the British Library, 19th century ones. The Times Digital Archive, if you can get access to it through a library. But there is a Times Online website, which is actually run by the Times um, their archive, which I've given you the, the address of, and that is something you can subscribe to as an individual, which you can't do with the, the Big Times Digital Archive. So they're all things that are worth having a, an explore in, uh, and any others that you find. There are, there are other newspaper sites, some you have to pay for, and some smaller ones, but there is a huge amount there. Just to give you an idea, on the 19th century newspapers one, if I put in, on an advanced search, I search for burial club, and um, murder in the, the full text, uh, not just the keyword search, but the full text, so it searches the whole newspaper. If I just put those two terms in, I get 250 hits. If I extend this to burial society, which as I said, is what they're usually listed as, then I get well over 1,200. Now, they are not all going to be proper hits. Some of them will be where the word burial club or burial society and murder are in the same um, sort of section, but they're not connected with each other. And sometimes you will get um, the same case reported in more than one paper. If it's a, a really big scandalous case, it will be in a number of local newspapers up and down the country. Having said that, these are only the ones that are brought up by those particular search terms on a very limited number of newspapers. There are only 48 newspapers on there. There are many, many more newspapers that were published. They're just not searchable online. So a good old rummage in local newspapers generally would, I'm sure, reveal vast numbers of these things. It's a huge amount of research to be done there. So I hope I've encouraged some of you to go on and, and search for the dirt, really, on... Other people's families, because you probably wouldn't find anything on your own. But just to, it's something that every, everybody can join in with. And if you do find something interesting, you could put it into your archives. It's a great place for putting all those little bits of information that you found that are quite interesting and you don't quite know what to do with them. And I should practice what I preach. And I will put some of these uh, details that I have transcribed from National Archives documents. I will set a good example and put some of those in your archives. And I know at least two of you, uh, no, probably three of you, will be checking to see that I actually do this and tell me off if I don't. So there's a hostage to fortune. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. And um, you're, you're just going to put it into practice in a theoretical sort of way. You're not going to do anybody in, but do some investigation about... Uh, um, other nasty people. Anyway, thank you very much. This event was recorded live on the 9th of April 2009 at the National Archives, Kew.